Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, I hope you're all well. Tonight we have another serial killer, this time from England, well Scotland I suppose. He preyed on homeless young men, offering them a bed for the night, but then brutally strangled, drowned and he wanked himself when they were dead. He was nicknamed the British Jeffrey Dahmer, but he was also known as the Muswell Hill Murderer and the Kindly Killer. This is the story of Dennis Nilsson. And a big shout out to Truman who suggested the case. Now, my references tonight are Paul Sutherland from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. If you haven't heard Paul's podcast, you should give it a try. Also, the Murder Mile podcast by Michael J. Buchanan Dunn, another podcast to look out for. And Michael, he actually performs walks around London's Murder Miles, which hopefully... He will be able to start up again this year if the that flu dies down. Also, the Independent UK, BBC, the Sacramento Bee, the Leaf Chronicle, the Guardian, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Observer, the Age, the Audible book, Killing for Company by Brian Masters, and the Sun. Okay, so many of you may already know of Nielsen. Some of you... Uh, from the miniseries called Dares, which for the life of me I couldn't find to watch online without signing up to some subscription thingo in the US. Anyway, on the 30th of December 1978, at age 23, Nielsen would meet up with a very young guy who he thought was about 17 years old at the Cricklewood Arms Pub. Actually, he was just a boy of 14 years. What would happen that night and the next day would change the course of Nielsen's life forever. Now, Dennis Andrew Nielsen, or Des as he was known, was born on the 23rd of Oct- uh, November, sorry, 1945, at Fraserburgh, Aberdeenshire, Scotland. Aberdeenshire, Scotland. I think I got that right. I <laughs> About an hour's drive north of Aberdeen. Now, he was the second of three children born to Elizabeth White and Olaf Moksheim. His father, Olaf, was a Norwegian soldier who'd fled to Scotland during World War II when the Germans occupied Norway. He was part of the Free Norwegian Forces, and when he married Elizabeth, they stayed at her parents' place. Now, he was very involved with the Norwegian Free Forces, and he did neglect his marriage and family. They were divorced in 1948 when Dennis was only three years old. Now, Nelson was close to his grandfather. They went on long walks and hung out together. At age 62, while working as a fisherman in the North Sea, his grandfather died of a heart attack. His body was brought back to the family home and when Nelson, only aged six years at the time, had a look at him, he was told his grandfather was sleeping and going to a better place. Now, Nielsen waited and waited, then realised his beloved grandfather was never going to return. 
Now, this loss of his grandfather would shape Nilsson probably more than any other event in his early life. The loss of someone he was so close to and loved so much was deeply etched into his psyche. At around 10 years old, he nearly drowned, but was saved by another kid. He felt himself drifting away in the water. He thought of his, he actually thought his grandfather was going to come and save him. Now, as he got older, he realised he was gay. Although he was attracted to other boys, he didn't really act on any of his urges. Now, remember this is in the mid-50s and homosexuality is not a thing you come out about. It wouldn't be until 1967 for homosexual acts to become legal in most of the UK and I think from what I could see it wasn't until 1981 that it was legal in Scotland. His mum ended up marrying again in 1955 and had four more kids. They moved to Stryken in Aberdeenshire. (laughs) Stricken, Stryken. They were poorer than most and he sort of just wanted to get out of there. He thought of Stryken as a shithole. My words, not his. A place with nothing much to do and no real future for him. At school, he joined the Army Cadets as he thought that one day the Army would be his ticket out of the place. And joined the Army he did. He was only 16. He trained in the south of England at the Aldershot Barracks. Now, Nilsson enjoyed Army life. And after the loss of his grandfather and the emptiness and loneliness that followed, now he felt part of a hard-working team. He would train in the catering corps, which this actually gave him skills in butchery that he would put to great effect in later life. Although he was relatively happy in the army, he still felt guilty having gay feelings and tried to reconcile this in his mind that he was probably bisexual rather than homosexual. Now, there was a lot of drinking while he was in the army, drinking until people passed out. Now, Nilsson fantasised over the passed out bodies of his mates and he would also fake being passed out in the hope that maybe he might get groped. In his later army days, he had a room to himself where he could whack off in private and he worked out that if he stood in front of a mirror the right way, he could fantasise that he was having sex with another bloke. Nilsson spent just over 11 years in the army, rising to the rank of corporal, and he probably could have gone a little bit further. Now, During this time, he had many homosexual encounters outside of the army, but he was frustrated when he got feelings for a young soldier that grew stronger, but he knew would never come of anything. He left the army because of his political persuasions at the time put him at conflict with the army's operations in Northern Ireland at the time. Now, just a little bit off topic, and some of the UK islanders might know, but even in 1994, when I was backpacking and working in London, often you would be on the tube and the train would stop, and then everyone would have to evacuate because someone had left their bag on the train, and it would have to be checked out just in case it was an IRA bomb. Now, I don't know if that still happens in the UK, but of course it wouldn't be from the IRA anymore. Anyway, after leaving the army, he went home to Scotland, but this was short-lived after a fight over being gay with his brother. Nilsson went back to London late 1972. In April of 1973, he joined the police force, hoping to get that air of camaraderie that he got in the army, but it wasn't to be. Where the army life was filled with discipline and everyone worked as a tight-knit group, 
The police force just wasn't the same. Once he finished work, he was alone. He filled his lack of company by frequenting gay bars around London. There was the Golden Lion and Salisbury Pub in Leicester Square, the Colhern Arms in Earl's Court, the Black Cap in Camden Town, the King William IV Pub in Hampstead, and the Cricklewood Arms in Cricklewood. Thanks, Paul, for your list of pubs. However, the relationship Nielsen had were either one-night stands or just didn't go anywhere. He was looking for a long-term relationship, not one where his lover would leave him the next morning. After leaving the police force, Nielsen found some work as a security guard until he landed a civil servant position at a job centre in Denmark Street, Charing Cross. At this stage, Nielsen lived at 80 Tygmouth Road, Cricklewood, around the corner from Willesden Green Station. It's here he met 20-year-old David Gallachin, who was being hassled outside the pub by a couple of blokes. Nielsen intervened and they went back to his house. They got along well and decided to move into a bigger place together at 195 Melrose Avenue, just around the corner. The ground floor flat had a garden in the back that Nielsen asked to have exclusive use of in the terms of the rental agreement. Now, this relationship became strained after about a year. They stayed living together, but eventually they slept in different rooms and would bring home casual partners. By May of 1977, Galichen left and formally ended the relationship. So again, Nielsen was alone, felt unworthy as a partner, was drinking to excess and tried to blank all of this out of his mind by working hard at the job centre. Okay, so now things start to go crazy. On the 30th of December 1978, Nielsen was drinking at the Cricklewood Arms when he noticed a young man being refused service. He approached the guy that he believed to be about 17 years old, Nielsen himself being 33 at the time, and offered drinks back at his place. They got drunk and passed out in bed. In the morning, Nielsen was afraid to wake his sleeping friend because he feared he would leave him. Nielsen grabbed a tie that was on the floor, a necktie, put it around the guy's neck. He then straddled him as he tightened the tie. The young guy woke up and they struggled, falling onto the floor. Eventually, Nielsen got the upper hand and the body went limp, but wasn't dead. Nielsen went to the kitchen, got a full bucket of water and pushed his partner's head into it until there were no more bubbles. He then smoked a cigarette and made coffee. Then the dog came into the bedroom and sniffed the dead man. Now, Nielsen ran a bath and washed the body. He then pulled him out of the bath and sat it on the dunny, which is a toilet, by the way. He then took him to the bedroom and put him on the bed. Nielsen expected police to knock on his door at any time once the young man was noticed missing, but this never happened. He went into town and bought an electric carving knife with the intention of cutting up the body. He didn't use it for this, though. Instead, he ended up taking it to work and used it there in the kitchen, probably for cake day, I don't know. Anyway, Nielsen dressed the body and placed him in the bed and hugged him. He did try to have anal sex with the corpse, but he couldn't maintain a hard-on, so he decided to put the body under the floorboards. At this stage, he couldn't because of rigor mortis. He gathered up the young man's clothes and threw them out in a bin. Now, once the body had become pliable again, he stuck him under the floor. Later, he took the body out again and washed it in the bath. He then took it into the bedroom where he admired the youthfulness of the body and he ended up wanking himself onto it. Later, he suspended the body upside down and he wanked himself 
again. Now, when he finished, he put the body back under the floorboards. Nielsen would then meet Martin Hunter Craig. Now, Martin would become his only friend. Martin said that he was a great laugh and fun to be around. Now, Martin led a bit of a nomadic life. He had no permanent address and couch surfed wherever he could get a place to stay. They met one afternoon in Soho and Nielsen asked if he wanted pizzas and to go for drinks. Now, Martin told him he had no money, but Nielsen was happy to pay. Nielsen then asked if he wanted to go back for coffee and Martin agreed. Nielsen was about 32 or 33 at this stage and Martin was in his early 20s. They then had a casual affair. Martin didn't see him as a lover, rather he saw him as an elder brother. He knew he couldn't love him, but he liked spending time with him, saying he could sleep with him, but nothing more than that. Now, Martin didn't live with Dennis, rather he would only stay with him when he was in London. Martin said Nielsen would sometimes play dead, collapsing into a heap on the floor with his arms sprayed out. Now, Martin knew he was faking it, he just thought it was weird and wondered if Nielsen maybe wanted him to take advantage of him. Martin reckoned he was never a victim because he tolerated his weirdness and would always have a comeback if Nielsen said something weird or rude. He said Nielsen seemed to like someone having control over him. Also, Nielsen knew Martin would leave, but he would always come back to visit, unlike his one-night stands. Anyway, on the 11th of August 1979, seven months after killing his first victim and storing the body under the floorboards, he would dispose of the body by burning it in the backyard with rubber tyres to help disguise the smell. He then pounded the ashes to powder and raked them into the ground. The name of this young man wouldn't be known until 2006, as Nielsen had actually forgotten it. And it was Stephen Holmes, not 17 as Nielsen had thought, or said he thought at least. Stephen was only 14 years old. Now after the killing of Holmes, Nielsen had thoughts that maybe he should give himself up. Now, he, he didn't like feel like doing it again at all. He actually felt quite terrified of the consequences. But in October of 1979, Nielsen met up with Andrew Ho, a young Chinese guy. They went back to his place and they discussed participating in some BDSM. Andrew went along with it as he was hoping to get a bit of a payday out of it, some money, and he didn't mind a bit of bondage anyway. But then Nielsen tried to use a necktie to strangle Andrew and in the resultant struggle, he was able to break free and he ran out of the house. He then called the cops and told them of the attack. They did attend 195 Melrose Avenue, but nothing further happened. The cops probably putting it down to some queer rough play gone a little bit too far. Then on December the 3rd, 1979... Canadian student Kevin Ockenden had been staying at the Central Hotel in Argyle Street, London. He went out with his camera to take tourist pickies, you know what you do. He met Nielsen at lunchtime in a West End pub. Nielsen had a few hours off work that day, so they had a couple of rounds of drinks and toured the city taking photos and feeding pigeons. In the late afternoon, they decided to go back to his place to eat and then go out for drinks. Now, after eating, they decided to buy booze and drink back at Nielsen's place. Now, Kenneth was due to fly home to Canada the next day. However, he would never go back to his hotel or make his flight. 
Although they had a great time together that day, Nielsen couldn't get out of his mind the fact that Kenneth was going to leave. Nelson strangled him with the cord from a set of headphones he was wearing while listening to music. He would strip him and bathe him, then put him in his bed and sleep with him. The next day, he put him in the cupboard and went to work. He brought a cheap Polaroid camera on his way home, and then he took the body from the cupboard, sat him on the kitchen chair, and put undies, shirt and socks on him. He arranged Kenneth's body in several positions and took photos. Nielsen then took Kenneth's body to bed and laid him on top of him while he watched TV. Now, while watching TV, Nielsen would speak to him. He then had sex between Kenneth's thighs. He then put Kenneth under the floorboards. Now, over the next few weeks, he would take Kenneth from the floorboards, sit him in a chair and watch TV with him before returning his body back under the floorboards. Now, the coldness under this floor helped keep the body fresh. Now, Kenneth would be reported missing, one of only a few of Nielsen's victims. 16-year-old Martin Duffy would be Nielsen's next victim. He was a troubled youth who had run away from his Birkenhead home near Liverpool at 15 years of age. He hung out at gay bars and took Valium. Now, he seemed to be getting his life back on the rails, getting a job, returning home, studying catering, and he even got himself a girlfriend. But then he was busted fair evading by the cops, and this seemed to fuck him up a bit. He packed his things and told his family he was going to live in New Brighton, and that's not actually that far away. However, they lost touch with him after the 13th of May in 1980. He ended up in London, sleeping rough, until he met Nielsen. Now, Nielsen offered for him to stay at his place, and Martin agreed. After only a couple of beers, Martin crawled into bed. Then Nielsen straddled him and strangled him until he was unconscious. Nielsen then carried him downstairs where he filled the sink with water and held his head under for about three minutes or so until he was dead. He then stripped him and took him into the bathroom. This time Nielsen lay in the bath as well with Martin's body on top of him. Nelson then took him and sat him on the kitchen chair, dried him off, and then placed him on the bed. Now, Nelson spoke to Martin, telling his corpse that he was the youngest that he'd ever seen. He kissed him all over and held him. And then he wanked himself on Martin's stomach. He stored him in the cupboard until he started to bloat, and then he put him under the floorboards. Now, Nelson's fourth victim would be 27-year-old Billy Sutherland a heavily tattooed and heavy drinker from Edinburgh. Billy had been to juvie and to prison. In Scotland, he had a girlfriend and a baby, but when he went to London, he would sleep from place to place and with men for money. Even though he was a bit of a bad boy, he would always keep in touch with his mum. In May of 1980, he met Nilsson in a pub at Piccadilly Circus and then went on a pub crawl, ending up at Charing Cross Road. Nilsson was pretty pissed and decided to go home. Now, as he got to Leicester Square Station, he noticed Billy had followed him, with Billy telling him that he had nowhere to sleep. Probably because he was so pissed, Nielsen had no recollection on how he killed Billy, saying that he saw a dead body on the floor when he woke the next day, and it had been strangled. Billy's mum notified police that her son had not been in contact with her, and he was listed as a missing person. Now, there were 40 other missing Billy Sutherlands on the record at that time. 
Now, the next few murders, Nilsson has little or no recollection of who they are. Now, also, investigators can't find them either. Now, this would be because of a combination of the victims being drifters, not having regular contact with others, and their remains would be virtually eliminated. It's around this stage that Nielsen had run out of room to store these bodies. He would leave their soft tissues for rats and foxes to eat and burn whatever was left, using tyres to disguise the smell. Now, I can't imagine the smell inside his flat. He did use joss sticks, or some call them incense sticks, to cover up the smell, along with these air fresheners that you buy. Also, he would spray insecticide insecticide inside to help keep the maggots in the bodies under control. He said the most he ever had under the floorboards at any one time were six bodies. I don't know. If I leave the cat's food out during the day and I come home from work and it's been, say, maybe a little warmish day, you can certainly smell that food if she doesn't eat it all. So I can imagine if you've got six bodies under your floorboards what it must smell like so as i said there isn't much info on these next victims nielsen's fifth victim was probably a thai or filipino male sex worker the sixth was probably an irish laborer the seventh was a starving hippie type he found sleeping in a doorway at charing cross and he couldn't recall anything about the eighth victim Now, the ninth and 10th victims were young Scottish men that he'd met in pubs in Soho. Now, his 11th victim was a punk skinhead he picked up in Piccadilly Circus. He had a neck tattoo which said, cut here, and later that night, Nielsen did just that. Victim 12 was 24-year-old Malcolm Barlow from Sheffield. Malcolm was epileptic and forever on government assistance. In fact, he was known to know the government assistance or DHSS procedures like the back of his hand, and apparently that's about all he knew. He was very low IQ. He could bring on epileptic fits whenever he required it to get sympathy. His parents were dead and he had no friends. He was a liar that would do anything for money, including blackmail and sleep with blokes. He was lying on the footpath near Nielsen's house on the 17th of September 1981. When Nielsen saw him as he walked past on his way to work, he asked if he was okay. Now Malcolm said he was having side effects from the epilepsy medicine and Nielsen took him back to his place for a cup of tea while he went down the street and called 999 for an ambulance. Back then we didn't have mobile phones of course and not Many houses are all had telephones in there, so you'd have to go to the telephone box. So he's left the guy in the house and he's gone down to make a phone call. Malcolm was taken to Park Royal Hospital where he spent the night. The next morning on the 18th, he left the hospital, signed on at the DSS first, and then he went back to Nielsen's house and sat at his doorstep waiting for him to come home from work. When Nielsen arrived and asked why he wasn't in hospital, Malcolm replied, that he was better now, and they had discharged him. Now, Nielsen offered him a meal, and they sat and watched telly. Nielsen had some booze, and Malcolm asked for some too. But Nielsen initially refused this on the grounds that it wouldn't go well with his medicine. However, Malcolm wouldn't let up, and so Nielsen gave him some. After a couple of drinks, Malcolm passed out. After an hour, Nielsen tried to wake him, but he was out cold. He wondered if he should call an ambulance... But instead, he strangled him. 
He turned off the TV and then he went to bed. The next day, not bothered to put him under the floorboards, he stuck him under the kitchen sink and went to work. Now, this would be the last victim of Nielsen's at 195 Melrose Avenue before he moved to a new place at 23 Cranley Gardens, Muswell Hill, and that was in October of 1981. Now, this came about after his place was broken into and ransacked. Police attended Nielsen's place. They made their general observation, asked questions and all that, and then they left. Now, all the while, they were standing on maybe six of Nielsen's kills. I mean, what the fuck? Didn't they smell rotting bodies in the house? Or did they just smell something off and they just wanted to get the fuck out of there because it was so stinky? Really? I don't know. Now, Nielsen was offered a place at Muswell Hill and money to relocate. Now, he would have to dispose of these remaining bodies in the flat, and he did this by his usual method of burning them with tyres in the back garden. And the other thing is, these funeral pyres that he was he was burning out the backyard, even the remains after he'd stripped most of the fat and stuff off and the foxes and the rats had eaten all that... They were still huge fires. In fact, some of the kids would come round and have a look at these fires, especially with the the tyres burning, all that rubber, the black smoke. Nothing was done. It's just crazy. Now, the place at Muswell Hill wasn't like the Melrose Place. <laughs> 90210. It wasn't like the Melrose Avenue Place, which had a ground floor with a garden. Muswell Hill was a three-storey flat split into several units. Now, Nielsen was on the top floor, so hiding bodies under the floorboards and burning them out in a back garden just wasn't an option. But this didn't deter him at all. He actually ended up asking his old friend Martin Hunter Craig to move in permanently. But Martin declined because of the drinking and constant weirdness of Nielsen. He could handle it probably for a few days at a time, but no way could he do it on a permanent basis. Now, after moving in in the first couple of months, Nielsen took many guys back to his flat without killing them. But then on the 23rd of November, he attempted to strangle 23-year-old Paul Nobbs, who he met at the Golden Lion in Soho. Nielsen attempted to strangle him, but for some reason stopped. Now, Paul was unsure what had happened when he woke the next day and presented himself to hospital. The doctor told him it looked like someone had tried to strangle him and to go to the police but he was afraid of being outed, so he did nothing. The next one to get away with his life was 21-year-old gay man and drag queen Carl Stotter, also known as Cara Le Fox. Nielsen met him at the Black Cab pub in Camden Town. Now, they went back to Nielsen's place where they were continuing to drink. When Carl passed out, Nielsen tried to strangle him with the zipper of a sleeping bag. Now, what's weird about this is that Carl passed out but then he came back to consciousness after Nielsen's dog was licking his face. Now, Nielsen thought, oh shit, now I better try and drown him. So he he did try, but that just didn't seem to work. He then resuscitated Carl, and when he came to, Nielsen told him that he'd slept funny and the zipper of the sleeping bag had got caught around his neck. In the end, he took Carl to the train station and let him go. Now, Carl did go to the hospital and he would have psychiatric help from the distress of these events. 
He told the doctors how he felt he'd been attacked by strangulation and that his head plunged underwater, but he just couldn't recall everything. Now, the psychiatrist told him that he was just making it all up and gave him heaps of drugs to try and get over it. About a year later, he would be tracked down. This is Carl would be tracked down and interviewed by police. Now, Carl wasn't having crazy thoughts at all. It would be very valuable in the witness box in the end, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Nielsen's 13th victim and first at Muswell was petty criminal John Howlett. They'd met once before and ran into each other at the pub. They ended up back at Nielsen's place. Now, Nielsen seemed to tire of John's company and asked him to leave. John refused and got into Nielsen's bed. Now, Nielsen found a piece of furniture strapping and tried to strangle him. A huge struggle ensued with Nielsen almost getting strangled himself. But then he got the upper hand, John went limp and Nielsen got off him. But then, all of a sudden, this John guy springs back to life so Nielsen tries to strangle him again for a few more minutes. Now, his heart was still beating so Nielsen dragged him to the bath, filled it up with, filled it up with water, of course you're going to fill it up with water, that's what you fill baths up with, and he drowned him. Now, John Howlett would be the first body that Nielsen would dismember as he no longer had these floorboards to hide his bodies under. To speed up disposing of this body as he had friends coming, and that was probably Martin coming, he started to cut the body into little pieces and flush it down the toilet. Now, this took too long, so he started to boil the head, the hand and the, the hands and the feet. He stripped off all the meat then, and he threw the bones into the bin. Now, some of the bones he threw over the fence into a disused waste area. The other parts he would just store around the house in plastic garbage bags. The 14th victim was Graham Allen, a homeless man that Nielsen had met in Shaftbury Avenue near Chinatown in London. Now, Nielsen had made him an omelette when he got him back to his house and it looks like Graham had passed out while eating it. He was just sitting there with half of it hanging out of his mouth. Now, this seemed to piss Nielsen off or disgust him. So, he strangled him and then left his body in the bath for three days before dismembering dismembering him as he did with John Howlett. Now, the problem was that no matter how fast he tried to flush body parts, boil heads and hands, he still had large amounts of rotting flesh stacking up and he's flat. He didn't have a freezer. Maybe that's what he should have done. Just got a freezer. I don't know. Now, it was noticed that Nielsen had his windows open all the time and he was just burning joss sticks, you know, the incense sticks, just 24 hours straight. When Martin came to visit his mate, he said to Nielsen that the new place stunk and it stunk the same as his last place. Now, Dennis said that the smell seemed to follow him around. Nielsen's 15th and final victim was drug addict Stephen Sinclair. Now, Nielsen bought him a hamburger in Oxford Street and Nielsen then offered him to come back to his place. With Stephen high on booze and smack, Nielsen found it easy to strangle him but it would be disposing of his body that would bring everything undone. You see, you can flush away just so much in body parts before the drains will clog up, especially in London. I mean, I stayed in a bed breakfast once in Bath. It 
<laughs> you, you take a dump and then you press the button and it's like they've got this little blender in the bottom of it. It goes and it grinds it all up before it flushes it away. That's how bad the plumbing is that it has to grind your poos before they flush them away. And I'm sure a few of my UK listeners will understand what I'm talking about. Anyway, anyway, he's flushing all these body parts and clog up it did. Now, first, the lower floors were having problems with toilets blocking and backing up, then the mid-level floors as well. Now, this meant plumbers would be called and Nielsen knew that he might get busted. At first, the plumber was called and he did the usual thing by trying to put Drano down the dunny, but this didn't work. So the big guns were called in for a better look. Now, Dynarod was the company and they are still around today, actually. Now, they were called in as they have mechanical devices that can worm their way down the drain and unclog shit, literally. I think they're called electric eels. They opened a manhole cover and saw what they thought was flesh and bones. Now, they didn't call police straight away as it was getting dark. Instead, they decided to come back the next day and check it out properly without making a big fuss with police. I mean, they probably thought it was just some animal bones, maybe some chicken bones. They never really entertained the idea it would be human flesh and human bones. Now that night, Nielsen went down and took off the manhole cover cover and tried to pull out some of the flesh and bones. Now he got some of it out and he even thought maybe he should just go down the shop, get some chicken bones and chicken flesh to replace it with, but he just didn't act on that thought at all. The next day, the dino rod guy noticed that the manhole cover had been moved as there was a crack in it and this was now facing in a different direction. Now, when they inspected the contents of the drain, they called police as it now looked like human bones. The cops came and took some of the flesh and bones to the local hospital for examination. And yes, the bones were from a human hand and the victim had been strangled. Now, how the examiner knew the victim had been strangled, the police asked. Well, the piece of flesh, just by some luck, had come from the neck area and had ligature marks. Now, when police ask Nielsen, of course, they're going to knock on all the doors and ask questions. When they asked him if they knew if he knew anything about the body parts in the drain, he at first expressed disbelief, like, oh, I don't know. But then he was told to stop messing around and tell him where the rest of the body was. Now, he replied, in two plastic bags in the wardrobe next to the door, and I'll show you. When police entered the flat, they could already tell that musty smell was the stench of death. They opened a cupboard and saw plastic bags with air fresheners on them. They were full of various body parts. Now, Nielsen was taken downtown, and on the way, he was asked if it was one body or two. Now, he just replies matter-of-factly, 15 or 16 since 1978. Now, (laughs) these remains in his flat were found to be from three bodies, One had been there about a week, the other about nine months, and the third about 18 months. Now, his place in 195 Melrose Avenue, that was also searched with hundreds of bone fragments being found out the back in the garden. 
Now, when police interviewed Nielsen, he just wouldn't shut up. He went on and on about his crimes in as much detail as he could remember. Now, this was big news. Former cop and army butcher admitting to murdering 15 young men. It would also be found that several men had escaped with their lives. Now, they came forward after all the media publicity. And and finally, Carl Stotter, who the psychiatrist said that the attack he suffered, suffered was all in his mind. Remember him? He was contacted by police and they told him it wasn't in your mind at all. It was real. So here's Carl. He suffers the initial attack. He goes to get treatment, but he's told it's just all in your head, mate. He spends a year trying to bend his mind into thinking it was all a bad dream, taking all these drugs. Then he's told by police that it really did happen. Now, this did fuck him up for life. Carl sadly passed away in 2013, aged 52. Nielsen was charged with only six counts of murder as the police just didn't have all the bodies and the evidence to go any further. He was also charged on two counts of attempted murder. Now, the attack on Carl, that didn't end up being a murder charge because they didn't get all that information together and get it to court in time, but he was used as a prime witness. Now, what is disgusting about this trial is that when Carl did front up to court, his mum just put a little bit of makeup on him to just give him a bit of colour in his face. He just looked awful. Now, the press ridiculed him for being homosexual, for having makeup on, and for being a pathetic sight in the witness box. He was even spat on by homophobes as he left the court. I mean, people, come on. I mean, this isn't 80 years ago. We're talking about 19, in the 80s, the actual 80s, and people are spitting on this guy because he's homosexual. And he's giving evidence for this serial killer, which they didn't spit on. Anyway, Nielsen was sentenced to life with a minimum of 25 years. However, changes to the law meant his sentence would be changed to never to be released. But when Nielsen was, he was able to get £55,000 to appeal this decision. And this, I'm going to, I can see why this angered his victims and the community. Now, there's a whole long drawn out reasons on why changes the legislation and being able to appeal decisions. I'm not going to go into that. In the end, he just stayed in there till he died. And he ended up dying on the 12th of May, 2018, aged 72, whilst at Her Majesty's prison, Full Sutton in York. Now, that's a maximum security prison. But he'd actually just had surgery at York Hospital, and he suffered a pulmonary embolism and a retroperitoneal hemorrhage. (sighs) Some words I'm not good for. Now, this occurred following surgery to repair an abdominal aortic aneurysm. And apparently it was an awfully painful death. His autobiography, which he wrote while he was in prison, he was never allowed to publish back then, has just been published called The History of a Drowning Boy. So, Islanders, what a scary case. I mean, Nielsen was just a dirtbag, stinky dirtbag, preying on just the vulnerable in society. 
He had an okay upbringing as well, and he seemed to do all right in his employment. He just seemed to have no reason to kill. Now, they reckon, and so do I, that this loss of his grandfather when he was young was imprinted into his mind, and that this was probably the reason he killed his lovers. He just didn't want them to leave. But he had so many that he didn't kill, so this it's hard to make any sense out of it. Now, if the police are still looking into this case, maybe with new techniques they can find out the identities of those Nielsen killed but are unknown. Now, he was another one of these serial killers that goes about in society looking just like any other normal person. Even his best friend Martin didn't really suspect a thing, even with the stink in his house. I mean, maybe if Carl had been believed when he told doctors that he'd been attacked, that Nielsen may have been caught and a couple of lives saved. But it's crazy that when his house was broken into and ransacked, that the police investigating was standing on the bodies of victims hidden in the floorboards, and they just didn't notice the smell. I mean, for fuck's sake. Like, maybe they just got there and it was a bit musty and shitty and they just thought as soon as they got there, let's... Let's just get out of here. I don't know. And what did this smell like at work? What did he smell like at work? You'd you'd think that the stink would just get into everything, into his suit, into his shirt, his socks, even his manscaped underpants. I don't know. Maybe people in the office just thought he had BO, or maybe they all had BO, and they all just drowned out each other's smell. I don't know. Maybe they're just being nice that he's the stinky guy and they don't go out with him because he didn't socialise with him. They just don't go out with him. They don't go back to his house because he's the stinky guy. I don't know. No one seemed to notice at his work. Another crazy fact is that Nielsen actually sent a letter to council complaining of blocked drains after he started flushing body parts down them. (laughs) Ah, So, Islanders, I suggest you check, check out... My UK mates at the Murder Mile podcast and the True Crime Enthusiast podcast from Shaw Further, they've got more details in this. And I highly recommend the book Killing for Company by Brian Masters for a deep dive. I, like, I've got it on Audible because I just don't have time to flick pages and read stuff. I've got to lie back and listen. And it is a great, I haven't listened to it all, I've listened to certain chapters of it, but it's a really good deep dive. So. Before I go, a big shout out to all my patrons. Thank you for all your support to keep the lights on. As generally, this is a commercial-free podcast. Special thanks to my new patrons, Kurt Perch. Hey, Perchy, how you going? And Colleen Thomas. Now, if you'd like to help out, go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland. And I have delayed sending out stickers to people because I've got a new batch that I'm going to send out this week with this month's Patreon people and if you do get an email from me for your reward mug or t-shirt which I've sent out and you haven't replied just reply to me and I can get all that sorted out just in case I've missed you as well just say hey I've been here three months where's my mug where's my shirt that's cool now if you just want to buy me a beer you can shout me out on paypal.me forward slash true crime island Now, there's links to the merch, social media, and all that YouTube stuff on my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can also email me if you want to get in touch with me. (sighs) 
So, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fuck a lunga.